0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America N.A. member FDIC. Meet Calvin. Hi. Calvin won 50 bucks off his roommate. That's because Calvin has the iHeartRadio app.
1: iHeartRadio. Which
0: he used to make a pasta song playlist. I'm a genio-ky. Calvin blasted this on repeat after betting his roommate couldn't complete a four-day juice cleanse. Oh, I can. The song Proper Papardelle pushed him over the edge. Mm. I love carbs. Good thing Calvin is one of millions with the iHeartRadio app. Download it today and get paid to ruin your roommate's stupid cleanse. Like Calvin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup with Dave Prodan. I'm Dave Prodan, and this is episode 155. The world's best surfers either have traveled or are currently traveling from North America to Central America for stop number seven on the 2023 WSL Championship Tour, the Surf City El Salvador Pro, held at the world-class right-hander of Punta Roca. We are firmly in the race for the WSL Final Five men's and women's surfers, who will earn a chance to compete at September's world title deciding Rip Curl WSL Finals and El Salvador will be another opportunity to see who has what it takes. Get your fantasy teams locked in at worldsurfleague.com fantasy and watch the event live on worldsurfleague.com and the WSL app. Do not miss it. All right, episode 155. Today's guest is one of the foremost big wave icons on the planet and even more impressive than his Waterman Bonafides fides of the past 25 years is the fact that he essentially had to pioneer his own big wave community from his home country of Chile. And yet he's still been an Eddie invitee, an XXL award nominee, and basically a fixture in lineups around the world anytime the waves get serious. Complementing these accomplishments in the water, he's become a champion of the water in a sense, dedicating his time and energy to conservation efforts around the world and at home. Working with Patagonia Films, Ramon releases Corazon Salado this week, detailing the battle to protect the Cahuiscar National Park in Chile from the salmon industry. The film premieres on June 8th at patagonia.com corazon. That's patagonia.com slash C-O-R-A-Z-O-N. It is well worth your time. We talk about all this and more Please enjoy the Lineups Conversation with Chile's Ramon Navarro.
1: The good old clap, take one. That's right.
0: How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did. I wanted to be a world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? We can shut your f***ing And then I'll just say, put him up What? Let's go. He's like, you look too pretty on the way. Get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. I thought you were boxing. All right, so we have a very special guest with us today. Um, He and I uh, first met very, very briefly at the uh, Rip Curl Pro Search event in Chile in 2007, and he was already a legend at that point. Um, In the years since, he's established himself as one of the foremost members of the global big wave community. He's an essential part of the Big Wave Risk Assessment Group, BRAG, and seemingly on every major swell of note. Um, he's also dedicated his time and energy to making significant progress in the realm of environmental conservation, uh, being tagged as the, quote, illustrious son of Pichelimu. We have Ramon Navarro. Ramon, thank you so much for joining us on the lineup today.
1: Thank you, Dave. Thank you for the invite. It's, uh, it's an honor for me. Thank you for all your words you what you say about me. Thank you, man. <laughs> <laughs> well. <coughs>
0: You're coming to us from, from your car right now. Where are you? What are you getting up to today?
1: Uh, I'm right now in a beach. My, my son and a couple of friends are surfing a little beach break. So I'm in a dad mood right now. It's a small day here in Pichu Limo. The waves are pretty small, but um, it's a big swell coming tomorrow. So that's why my, my little boy and all his friends want to be in the water the most, most time today. So tomorrow at that time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> tomorrow tomorrow, do you get to surf? Is
1: that how that works? Yeah, exactly. Tomorrow looks like the way it's going to be um, big again. We have a really good season uh, this year. We have a lot of swells. Actually, we have a, one pretty big one last week, one of the biggest one of the year. And um, it's been a really good season so far.
0: Very cool. I, um, I, I did want to tell this story, right? So, so I mentioned that you and I, we first met. Um, 16 years ago, yikes uh, now, uh, very briefly at the Rip Curl Pro Search Chile uh, Championship Tour event, where you featured on the Chile team in the Foster's Surf Showdown alongside CT Wildcard at that event, which was uh, Manuel Selman. Um, Funny enough, I I was on a trip last week and that event came up and I told the story of how the surf at El Gringo in Arica was so solid and scary pretty much every day. Most of the CT surfers had never been there. And every day we would walk from our hotel along the coastline up the man-made peninsula to see what the call was. The surf was 8 feet, 10 feet, 15 feet, however you want to characterize it, and just slabbing onto this rock shelf. And we had the world's best surfers in town, but the water was virtually empty aside from this small crew that were out every morning. And those surfers were Chris Ward, Luke Monroe, Josh Kerr, and yourself. And the event call back then, it was a vote between the surfer's representative, who was Phil McDonald at the time, the event director from Rip Curl, who was Neil Ridgway, and the then ASP head judge, Perry Hatchett. And every day we would turn up and the script would be exactly the same. Neil would say, it's pumping out there, let's go, let's start the event. And Phil Macko would say, it's way too dangerous. No way. And Perry Hatchett would say, it is too dangerous. We're going to have a lay day. And this went on for four or five days until eventually Neil goes, it's pumping out there. Let's go. And Phil says, no way. It's still too dangerous. And Perry finally goes, it's not getting any smaller. We have to go right now. And yet every day, you know, it was Chris, Luke, Josh, and yourself who were out there just charging and kind of showing the world's best surfers it could be done. And I'm curious if, if you remember it the same way, because that, that story's been stuck in my head for 15 years.
1: Oh, that's crazy. A lot of time happened. Huh? <laughs> I didn't realize it was so many years. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was... I mean, for me, Arica and all my friends, actually, we're all every season. But he can surf a gringo every day those years. I mean, we stayed like three solid yeah. four months in the winter time, and and we pretty much surf every day. Which is big or not too big or small, it's just amazing wave. It's sketchy. It's really dangerous. But uh, when you serve a lot of time, when you spend a lot of time in that lineup, you understand really good how the the current and the reef and which one are the good ones. So, uh, yeah, it was it was really surprised to me those years. Like all the pros didn't want to surf. It was kind of like like a weird because um i have that view of the perfect wave and perfect a frame left and right and um everyone called it was too dangerous but um for me i was just kind of like another day in the gringo but um i understand i mean i mean all the pros you need to take care it was a sketchy wave it's a place you need to spend a lot of time to understand really good and a lot of a lot of those guys get really pounded and actually A few of them get gnarly injuries. I I remember Adriano smashed his face to the to the reef. He never want to get back there. So yeah, I think I have the same view what you say. Besides, I just look (laughs) for good waves, and obviously, I want to show up to everyone. Uh, It's kind of like the way the way we surf, and and especially those years, uh, I'm trying to make my name. So it was a good opportunity to do it. You know.
0: Absolutely. And I think, you know, in the upcoming segment, we're going to talk about a little bit of your biography before and after that moment. But flashing forward to the present, you know, your work and dedication to environmental conversation, you know, by the time our lineup episode drops um, in just a couple of days, your film with Patagonia, uh, Corazon Salado, which I think translates to Salty Heart, drops um, in time for World Oceans Day on June 8th. So just background, you know, can you tell us a little bit about the film and and what is it about?
1: Well, this is is a real special film. I mean, because it's filming in a deep Patagonia, deep South Patagonia, so places like um, not many people have the opportunity to go there, you know? So we taking boats and we Going into gnarly ocean with really bad access, and we basically go camping a couple of days in the middle of the nowhere, finding some amazing waves It's perfect a frames and point breaks and crazy wild land. And um, but at, at the same time, we're working with local community, the the Kaweskar community—they used to be indigenous community for deep Patagonia South, so. We work in there, and we starting to show up a little bit surfing a little what the problem they have and, and show pretty much how amazing those places are and how natural and important it is for the whole world and At the same time, we pretty much shock with this crazy issue with the is salmon farming issues in the in the deep south of the Patagonia, so the film is something about local community, protect places surfing and how we do a really good impact for the local community because by the end of the story we actually put the local kids into the water, you know, things that they never doing for, hmm. for years, for generations. So we make a little um diving class and we make a like a little diving school and we put local uh community into the water, which was amazing. One of the one of the one of the coolest sprints I ever I have in my life. So it's a really cool film, man. It's it's something beautiful in one part. and super sad to just be in the middle of the nowhere and it's a lot of trash from the salmon farming industry. which should have a really big mm. impact in all the area.
0: For sure. And and I mean I've been fortunate enough to view the film. It is it's incredible. Um and I just one of the things I noticed too is there are so many parallels. Obviously you're someone who comes from Chile, Um, you are the son of a fisherman, but then you have someone like Leticia Caro, who is a a representative of the Caviscar community. She's also the the child of a fisherman. Um, And so it was just very cool to see the different layers of you working with um, that community, and then really identifying you know the way that they interacted with that part of the the country and that part of the Patagonia area, um, the problems that have arisen due to like hyper commercialization and industrialization, and really it, it 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 talked about a pretty fair balance of just reviewing each side and saying, "Look like not all progress is is." goes in the right direction. Sometimes it goes down a cul-de-sac and we do things wrong and we have to get back to something that worked, you know, 50, 100 years ago.
1: I mean, well, it's... and this is a crazy story because, like, if you're talking about uh, Cowboyscore community, talking about which was, like, the real way they used to live, is not far away. It's, like, 150 years ago, 200 mm-hmm. years ago. They used to be mm-hmm. diving community. They used to... uh hanging around all those crazy channels deep in the patagonia in canoes you know and and tiny little canoes and mm-hmm. moving into the channel uh, all the women are diverse so and then when the people yeah. show up in chile talking like, about know, about 150 200 years ago um it was one of the biggest genocides in the history you know they kill everyone and uh there's a few of them yeah. uh keep alive and running away and hiding there in the islands until until the whole government in Chile get in there and starting this supposedly colonization, uh, which is a fake in you know, a big time to the local communities. Huescar and Alakaloofe, mm-hmm. a lot of more communities that used to live there in the wildest places and super heavy cold water, um, nasty weather, you know, and. And they used to live and enjoy those places and respect those places. So, when now you see everyone talking about, like, the, the indigenous communities disappear, and when you know people like Leticia and his dad and, and the whole community, you realize the community is still alive, you know? It's still there. It's on the blood. But yeah. they have no access to the ocean because uh, people take care of everything from there. So... Uh, the other side you see like this big globalization is starting growing and and growing salmons in places that have never been salmon. You, you need to put in part like salmon mm-hmm. not from hilly fish, you know, the North American fish. And um sure that impact to the local community, to the indigenous community, to fishermen, uh, it's something it's something really hard to see, it, you know, because on one side, yeah, Leticia's dad is fisherman, as my dad. So we're talking the same language, so we get really close together and we jump in the boat and we we go all these fjords in, in the Patagonia. And by the end of the day, we're talking pretty much the same story, how all this big globalization is starting to destroy the resources and is trying, is starting to destroy the environmental and just numbers and numbers and numbers and just business trying to grow in and growing and growing, but nobody takes care of modern nation. Nobody takes care of like uh, those wild places. You know, there's not many in the world already. There's just a few places like hot, hot spot, you guys call it. Uh, and the, the Deep Patagon yeah. is one of them. So for me and for the whole Patagonia team, we've been working in this project for three years, trying to put that reality out in a film and trying to. You know help a little bit because we go against Mm. the law we go against uh governments politicians and obviously salmon farming which is you put in numbers is pretty much david and Goliath. you're fighting against something huge and it's going to be a really hard uh, battle to win but um we're trying our best and and we keep pushing in our heart to people understand how important is respect modern and especially for this podcast, which is really important, is like make American people understand the salmon from Chile is something polluted the water here. I mean, it's not a healthy fish. It's not what like they say is like fancy fish from the clear water on the Patagonia. it's the other side. They put a lot of antibiotic, antiparasite, and uh, they destroy the culture and destroy the the fjords in the south. So super tough and the idea with the film is show up to everyone what actually is the truth from Salmon in Chile.
0: Yeah, and that definitely comes across in the film too. You know, and I also think that the example that that you highlight in the film is also one that you can look at around the world as well. Like one of the comments from the film, and I'll paraphrase, but it was something to the effect of, you know, it's taken four point five billion years to shape what we have now. And only four and a half decades more are left to unravel those systems that make our existence possible. And I, I think of that in like the relativity of time. Like there's a lot of young people that listen to this podcast. You know, to them, forty-five years seems like forever. You know, and they'd be like, "Oh yeah, this is how it's always been done." It's like, no, it's a blip. It's a blip in the entire arc of this ecosystem. And there's no reason you cannot adjust and optimize and change things to something that's more sustainable did that strike you at all when you were working on the film just how something that has been evolving for so long can be changed so quickly and and i guess on the other side of that do you have any optimism that it can be changed for the better on the other side of it
1: yeah that what sylvia I'll say that and, and it's pretty amazing actually it make me let me cry when you hear it and when you see it. Uh, You try your best. And actually, government don't think in that way, just thinking about growing and growing and growing. You know, I mean, actually, yesterday, Chile was kind of like a huge hope because the politician bought uh, a new law to protect uh, areas like marine and national parks and water. And we're waiting for that. And the response from, from a politician yesterday was the other side, you know, like they're not going to be allowed yeah. salmon farming and the natural reserve and the national parks. So, I mean, sometimes you have a hope that uh, when things like that happen, kind of like your your whole world fell down, you know, because it's like, it's not just Chile, it's mm. every single place in the world we never thinking in the future you know everyone thinking about here and now Mm -hmm. money and make business bigger and bigger and bigger how our numbers gonna grow and uh nobody Mm -hmm. thinking what legacy we're gonna give for our childs for new generations you know even a few more generations past that so i mean it's crazy it's crazy because uh, it's crazy and hard to have a hope because if you're thinking in this supposedly technology world when you have access to all the information with everything just in your phone just a couple of clicks and you're going to understand everything uh we're still on the point like the whole world have they don't want to make you know a climate pack or, or um uh, how to call it uh how they call it like a um, or argument to everyone mm-hmm. every single country work in the same way and they say okay we gonna protect right. our ocean we gonna protect our world because it's the only one we have so every single country is still fighting and pushing besides to just growing and growing and growing but nobody's thinking about the future and it's like and if you're thinking locally that is like I mean, this is my home. I have to protect it. I don't have another home. It's my home. And and I want to leave my home in the better way for my son and for the next generation. So for your question, it's super hard to have a really hope. You know, I mean, it's a lot of things going in a good way. It's a lot of people working. to try and these things change. But on the other side, mostly the power, the politicians have it. They don't push it in that way, you know. I mean yeah, it's not yeah, something and I like, think that's oh yeah. It's 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 not something they don't know. It's something they don't want to do it. Yeah. You know, because I mean humans have the tools. Come on. Everyone have the tools today. Mm. Everyone know how the best way to do it and and what is the best for environmental. But they actually wanna do it? My answer is no. hmm
0: Yeah, and I, I, I think that your story, you can apply it like that same attention to so many different spaces, whether it's political spaces or social spaces or whatever it is. And it's hard, right? Because I think what you're identifying is you get these spaces that are siloed, right? We've got end stage capitalism over here, which is like, I'm only thinking about money and the bottom line and this and this and this. And then you have people over here who care about the environment. um, And they almost look at the two groups, look at one another like, oh no, they're, they're the enemy, oh, we've got nothing in common, and vice versa. And I think that's how we kind of end up in these situations where there is no change. And you've got a comment in the film, and, and you say you know, artisanal fishing is disappearing in the South as a result of the salmon industry that forces them to work in their centers. And because resources are running out, because the salaries are better to work there, the culture is beginning to be lost. And I know I've kind of just put you on the spot in terms of is do you, do you have any kind of hope for us to kind of change the trajectory of this certain situation? But going back to my other point on the silos, do you think there's anything that could bridge those two groups in the sense of are there elements of artisanal fishing and that culture that could be attractive and not corrupted by industrial fishing and maybe are there elements of industrial fishing that could be applied in a non-harmful uh, way to the artisanal fishing communities, maybe technology or whatever? And, and is that a potential to create a bridge where everyone's kind of working towards a goal that is maybe they're not making as much money, but they're still making a little bit of money, but they're also not damaging the environment?
1: I mean, the thing is, I don't know how that thing works in the States, but I'm from Chile. Mm. I mean, we don't have regulations and that's the main problem mm. in the water. We don't have, yeah. uh, we don't have police in the water. You know, nobody, nobody actually mm. is the one who's going to take care of the things doing the right way or doing the wrong way. So that's the kind of like the main problem in Chile. We have, a uh, Servicio Nacional de Pesca, which is like national service of fishing, but those guys mm-hmm. are supposedly the one that had to regulate everything. They don't have boats. You know? So supposedly they had to regulate everything from the land. So they can control pretty much artisanal fishing and small fisheries, but they never gonna control uh-huh. industrial fishery, commercial fishing, and besides the salmon farming is exactly the same thing. Actually, they don't have boats. So like I say, to go deep in the fjords, uh it's super hard access. Uh, when they have to go to control in any spot when the salmos are pretty much the same salmon farming, they have to go to the big cities, take them in the boat and they boat, go to the salmon place, mm. check everything and go back. So it was like, pretty much you're going to the police officers so in your car, picking up and go to your house to figure out if it's everything is good. So say that um it's super hard to try to understand and make something uh work in the water in chile you know i don't, I don't know if that goes mm-hmm. straight to your question but uh i mean no that makes sense we did no regulation and when the regulation it is nobody gonna take care of it. basically the big guys have to out to regulate by themselves so they do them basically whatever mm-hmm. they want it's super hard to put mm-hmm. in, in balance what the local fish can actually do in the future and what actually the industrial fishing and salmon farming can do in the future because no regulation. So everyone takes whatever they want from the ocean and nobody regulates and nobody control it. So it's something that is, that is no way going to work, you know? Yeah.
0: Well, it sounds like it, within that scenario, you know, your work with Patagonia on Corazón Salado is really one of the most important, if not the most important thing you can do because you're putting the story out there and educating a public that can hopefully engender change at a structural level politically and then create regulation. That 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 seems like that's the intent. Um that's probably why this film is, is, is super important. It's obviously very engaging to watch. But for, for listeners of our podcast who do watch the film um, and want to do something, w- w- what can they do? What, what do you recommend they do?
1: I mean, in the film, is going to be a link. So everyone can sign the link. And which is the local community want to do it and everyone support them. is. Right now, the Kaweskar Place is a, is a national reserve. So what well, we want, it turn into a national park. So that's kind of like everyone can sign and help us because uh, with the national reserve, the, there is no protection in the water. And uh, if you turn into a national park, supposedly it's gonna get better protection in the water. But uh, like like I said, yesterday they bought the new law, which is supposedly they're gonna be allowed to salmon farming growing and growing in, in, in the national park and the national reserve. So. It's a crazy balance, but supposedly it's a national park. There is going to be more regulations and, and more uh, layers of protection for that place. So that is kind of like the only thing we're trying to do and make the government understand. It's a lot of people, not just from Chile, from the whole world, trying to protect the, the deep area in the Patagonia, the Kaweskar Reserve, the, the, the old Patagonia deep south. So that's kind of like we asking for, and that's actually we hoping for. So everyone can link in uh, and, and the Patagonia webpage when the film is out and sign this, the petition. It's going to be a big help.
0: Awesome. Well, by the time this episode comes out, we will definitely have a link to the film in our show notes. So everyone go check out Corazón Salado. Uh, we're going to take a quick break to get a word in from our sponsors, and we'll be right back.
1: I hear you think podcasts are all about true crime, huh? Well, wise guy, the iHeartRadio app's got all kinds of podcasts. We got stuff you should know and stuff they don't
0: want you to know. We got Bobby Bones, Big Boy, and Lou Later. We got SpongeBob Binge Pants and Exotic Erotic Storytime. We got Doughboys, Two Dudes in a Kitchen, Green Eggs and Dan. Hey, we got ElfQuest. We got podcasts for everything on the iHeartRadio app for free. If you don't download that, well, that's not just a true crime, my friend. That's criminal. All right, we are here with Ramon Navarro. You know, Ramon, we we spent the first segment talking about your film *Corazon Salado*. Um, but tell us a bit, a bit, a bit about your background. You know, born and raised. W- where did you grow up? What was your your family life like?
1: I mean, I'm from Pichilemu, which is um, the place I more love. And coming from a fisherman family, um, Pichilemu is like. Three hours uh, south from Santiago, the place with a lot of perfect point breaks, beautiful waves. Pretty much, it waves every day here. And uh, this is a place where I grew up. Um, I love to grow up here. And in, in those years, Pichilema was a tiny little town. Just fishermen I used to live here, and and then the surfing show up into my life, and then into the town, and just like a boom, you know. Now it's a huge city compared to it was 15 20 years ago and um everything go between surfing and tourism right now so that's it that's it man (laughs) pretty much
0: when you mentioned surfing coming into your life like how how old were you when it came into your life and what was that experience did um, travelers come to town How, how did you get introduced to surfing
1: i mean i was diving or not diving but learning to dive and be in the ocean with my dad mostly the time when I was six, seven, eight, until eleven, pretty much. And um and then one day I saw people surfing pretty much in front of my house. And that was kind of like something weird to me and something new to me. But at the same time it was like, wow, I have a lot of connection with the ocean and I'm pretty much all day in the water. This is something Fun looks like so i'm starting just sitting on the beach and watch those guys surfing and until they get the point one of those guys broke a board and and give me my first board It was a, a brazilian board broken like three or four times and uh, i fixed it and that was my first board and that's how i was starting surfing i was 13 years old at that time It was super special because i um, do wow. And, and uh, it was it was super hard to have access, you know, to boards and wetsuits and everything here. Yeah. So uh, I don't have it. I don't have it, and um, I just in the, in the beginning I was surfing with spring suit, trunks, diving suit, until until the point I I was until the point I was um, actually surfing. And actually, I realized, wow, I like this thing. And a few years later, I buy my first wetsuit. And uh, and then I realized how good the <laughs> surfer wetsuit was. <laughs> because at the beginning, it was just surfing with springsuit here in the cold water. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and so we're talking 13. So what that's like, the early 1990s, mid-1990s. And as you said, it sounds like you got a, a board off of Brazilian. It doesn't sound like there was a huge surfing scene in Chile at the time. Is that, is that correct?
1: Oh yeah, it was nothing. It was in Chile. I think it was like five, six guys surfing, maybe maybe 10, but actually, nobody dedicated his life actually. you know And uh, for me, I was 93. I believe in '96. I decided to be a professional surfer in my, in my brain. <laughs> no, actually, you know, doing it, <laughs> but in my brain, Sure. Yeah. In my brain, I say to my dad and my mom, I want to be a professional surfers and, and they just laughing about it and say, "Yeah, uh, like, who? Only one Chilean is a professional and uh, they're completely right. No one, you know? And, um, yeah, I think for me, the big change was, um, 99. When I went for the first time to Hawaii, uh, I realized my dream. It was really mm-hmm. hard because my level of small wave surfing it wasn't that that good. You need to think about those years, uh, especially in Chile. We don't have surf videos. We don't have internet. It's just barely magazines show up if you want. Um, guys, bring a couple a couple of those to the town. Um, we don't have access to surfboard, wet suits. So basically, you buy any surfers whatever size and dimensions are you buy any wetsuit, whatever good or bad it is and um so the whole actually real war of surfing it was in 99 when i went to hawaii and then i realized like wow mm. surf level is super high but i uh, see the first time would actually I see this window which is wow well, is a, a scenes in a big wave surfing and and i have mm. big waves in my town in lobos and actually nobody enjoyed it and nobody work on that. And then I realized and we have a lot of big ways in Chile. So I think I mean definitely I saw opportunity there. I said like okay, I'm gonna try to mm-hmm. focus on big ways and discovering new ways in Chile and I'm gonna try to make my career and between Chile and Hawaii and searching for big ways. So that's pretty much how everything started and I don't have no idea how that idea came out into my mind because um, it was a a super hard road to take, especially coming from Chile. But um, Mm. until the point, actually get the level and the boards and all the equipment to start surfing big waves, it it was just starting to come out beautiful and like a dream come true because, uh, yes, it was the revolution of the internet and and all the media things starting growing. So kind of like I feel the whole world had that, that they want to see new waves you know they want to see new big waves they want to see new places like Arica, like you say like a gringo iquique yeah. lobos big waves and lobos uh that's pretty much how i make my name here
0: it's so interesting that you bring that point up because it's something we like to talk about on the podcast a lot and, and that is that you know in 2023 because of the internet and I'm, I'm sure this is the case with your son who you're watching surfing right now right is everyone has access to everything. Like I can watch a video of how, you know, Gabriel Medina or Stephanie Gilmore surfs that particular wave. I can watch their technique or I can watch them live on a championship tour event. You know, shapers can, you know, share information about materials and templates. You can get information about diet and fitness and training, all these things everyone has access to. But as you pointed out in Chile in the the early to mid 1990s, it's, Your access is maybe someone left a VHS video, maybe there's a magazine, that's your understanding of professional surfing. And as you pointed out, going to Hawaii was eye-opening in the sense of like, wow, this is what the level is in these different kinds of spaces. And it's interesting to hear you say, I took home that... The opportunity for me is in the big wave space, and I'd imagine that has something to do just with where you grew up, right? The the Chilean coastline is one of the longest in the world. It's you know forty two hundred kilometers north to south, and you've got tons of variety and tons of power. And as you said, a big wave spot in your backyard. And so, would you say that the way you approached your dream of being a professional surfer? From the time you were 16 at home to when you, after you returned from Hawaii, was radically different. Were you kind of like, okay, I thought I was doing this, but now I'm going to do that?
1: (laughs) I mean, it was kind of like no options, you know? I mean, (laughs) sure, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I I remember I showed up in December to uh, October to Hawaii Hawaii, and uh, I saw, I don't know, a later, I think it was surfing Little Backdoor, and I was like, wow, you know? And then I saw like the Pipe Master, and I saw the Haleiwa event, the Sunset event. So I was like, wow, I'm, I'm so far away from that level. But uh-huh. like I said, at the same time, I saw Waimea break. And it was the first time I saw actually big boards. Nobody had big boards in Chile in those years. Nobody had like a nine, eight, nine, six, mm. 10 footers. I mean, the biggest board right. I had those years was a seven four. So that was when I saw like a, the big opportunity. That was like wow. And everyone that year, actually everyone, because I I don't know. I mean, obviously for me obviously looking in big waves, but I think everyone in Hawaii those years talk about the big wave things and the focus was in Waimea. I mean, those years, nobody surfed just y- yet. A few older reefs surfing here and right. there. But Waimea was kind of like the main break and everyone talk about the eddy. I mean, if you one day you are dreaming about the big, wa- uh, big wave scenes, to be in the eddy, is kind of like the main goal and everyone talking about that. So for me, that was like, wow. I mean, you know, like a little penguin coming in, in the movie. I mean, a little penguin coming <laughs> from the Antarctic and dreaming to be in the contest. Yes, yes, yes. That was for me, wow. Be Eddie. I was like, oh my God. I mean, it's going to be the biggest goal in my whole life. One day be in the Eddie. That was kind of like thick in my mind uh, those years. and uh, And I think that was like the main focus then next year 2000 and 2001 and every single year there I was just working the whole season and between the studies and surfing um local events in here actually I win a couple nationals um champs a couple years and make money to go to Hawaii and surf Waimea. I mean, every single day Waimea was breaking, I was there and putting time and time and time, and then getting back to Chile, going to Arica between Lobos and Arica, and then go back to Hawaii just to focus in in Waimea. So I think all these ideas I have since the 16 years old all the way until the the Eddie. I mean, the the Waimea thing, just focusing. Big waves and training to a one day V and Daddy. That was kind of like my main goal mm-hmm. in my life. It, I mean, it's one
0: thing to say, yep, I'm going to focus on big wave surfing. It's another thing to accomplish anything in big wave surfing. And just a very, very summary, non comprehensive look at your career highlights Road La Bestia in 2004, in Chile. Uh, first place at the Quicksilver Ceremonial, Punto de Lobos, 2006. Fifth place at the 2009, Eddie Cow Uh, You know, you and uh, Manuel Selman, you win the Foster Surf Showdown at the Rip Curl Pro Search Chile 2007, Uh, the Monster Energy Drop Award at the 2009 Eddie Aikau, third place Toto Santos Big Wave event in 2010, second place finish at the Quicksilver Ceremonial Punta de Lobos 2011, second place on the the Big Wave World Tour in 2011, Ride of the Year nominee in the Billabong XXL Awards in 2012. That, that's Again, that's not even a comprehensive list of all your accomplishments in the big wave space and you've achieved so much coming from somewhere that, that as you pointed out, didn't even really have a big wave surfing community when you were growing up. You had to pioneer it yourself. Um, do, do you ever think about that? Just the idea that you essentially had to create that community inside of Peru for yourself?
1: <laughs> wow, I never put all those records together well i didn't realize (laughs) a few of the the things you say (laughs) pretty amazing i mean is it was hard on one side but it was super good in the other one because it was it was actually pretty easy to do it when you have the tools you know because i went to hawaii and learned from obviously cole christensen and mark healy and all the boys Uh there and and a few of those guys uh, coming to Chile with me to surf, you know. So it was super easy to just, okay, here's a big wave in that place. Let's go. We need just one ski and go. Mm. And you show up there, was nobody there. I come in already from the idea of surfing Waimea or the other reason Hawaii with 100 people in the water. You're just getting back to Chile. was nobody there. Actually, nobody wanted to surf those right. waves. So for me, it was like, okay, I'm training in Hawaii, going to Chile, and I'm going to have the ways just for me and my couple of friends, you know? So we make a really good group together between Cristian Merello, Diego Medina, um, Alfredo Escobar, taking pictures of and, and and just putting this little group. We are four or five guys searching for big ways and uh, doing the job nobody actually want to do it and nobody actually looking for it so mm-hmm. it it was like i say it was hard in one part because we don't have the knowledge and we don't we actually we don't know how hard it, it could be or how dangerous it could be because we still like in those years the, the 2000 all the way to 2011. nobody used impact base nobody used inflatable base i mean we don't have the proper big weight leashes. we have it and we had in remote places with no not much access you know like the proper uh, um doctors or um hospital nothing so it was it was a super fun mission man, and i love it i love it i mean it, it it couldn't be better than that for me it's like a dream come true and and the crazy thing about it is like even today 25 years Past that, we're still searching for big waves, and we're still discovering new big waves in Chile. Ugh. So n- n- this is pretty amazing. I mean, we still have that opportunity to surf places nobody ever surfed, and it was a lot more potential. I mean, even in the deep Patagonia where I was a couple months ago, it was crazy waves, difficult, difficult access, but the waves are there, you know. So. I think I was really lucky to grow up in in a place like Chile with with all these conditions and all these new waves. So we just had to do the job.
0: It's been awesome to watch. Um, We're going to take one more quick break to get a word in from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Manduka was founded in 1997 with the simple idea that a better yoga mat could make a world of difference. For generations, Manduka has revolutionized the yoga space by providing purposely crafted products that enable a more joyful practice, whatever that looks like for you. The collaboration between Manduka and Jerry Lopez honors Jerry's profound dedication to both surfing and yoga disciplines. The limited edition collection showcases Jerry's signature camouflage print inspired by his surfboards. It fuses his iconic surf style with Manduka's commitment to quality and sustainability, offering everyone a unique expression of their practice. We all know that having the right gear is essential and a yoga mat is no different. Feel the benefits of yoga with Manduka's soulfully engineered, eco-friendly products designed to inspire your practice wherever you go. The Manduka and Jerry Lopez collection want to inspire you to practice yoga however you choose to. And from now until June 10th, you will get 15% off of all products when you visit manduka.com with the code lineup 15 That's manduka.com, code lineup 1515 You know we, we've reviewed your impressive and inspiring trajectory as a, a professional surfer in the big wave space. You talked about your connection with the ocean from an early age, you know, diving with your dad at six. You know when did environmental activism and and your concerns for you know ocean ecology come into your life professionally in, in the sense of you know how how did it start to work with your sponsors? How did it start to work with projects like Corazon Saladar um, for you, or was that something that was always there for you?
1: I mean, I remember when I was a little kid with my dad hiking. Always, the first thing actually I remember was like I had to be ten years old and I was hiking to go diving and looking when the 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 waves are flat in Chile, which is we don't have many days like that, but. Um, I always see it because my dad wake up really early and go check the ocean, and I remember exactly one day we go check the ocean. It was completely flat, and I was like, "Oh, dad, let's go to that place. You remember that place we went last time? It was amazing. So many fish. And that's the place to go." And he said, "No, you know what? We don't have access to that place because the the landlord of that place they don't want people going in in the middle of the winter because the routing it, it can get bad, and so we had to go." To to this other place, and I remember that thing is sticking in my mind forever. So I was always was like, "What the hell? Why we cannot go to just dive in a place because the landlord say you're you don't have access." And we were talking about access here is places like it's nothing around. You know, you're not gonna go into the break into the house to get to the beaches. Places, like, especially in those years, it was places like um, big landfills with nobody around. So uh, that thing is stuck in my mind, and, and and I remember it was in 2000, the first time. And Lemo, the government, went to put a um, a pipe, a sewage pipe, in the middle of the town, and uh, the whole local community starting get together and fighting against. And, uh, and because of that year, I already win a couple of events. They put me in, in the front as a surfer. So we go on all those meetings and everything and we actually win that fight because we have the study about not the study but the knowledge about how the sandbar moving and and, and how the ocean works and the currents and everything between surfers and, and fishermen, we stopped the project because all the what well, the people from the project said it was completely wrong. And uh that was actually the first time I realized I have a voice. Because my my surfer career, mm-hmm. my name, and actually I had the opportunity to fight with my voice and to the media things, and actually media hear me and, and, and give me the opportunity to talk about it. So since there, that was ninety, that was 2000. Since there, I said, okay, I'm gonna use my voice to protect what I love, which is the ocean. You know, which is something super um, obviously.
0: Yeah, well, Ramon, uh, you, your your in the water. Your 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 commitment to ocean conservation and and you know ecological sustainability is. Beyond impressive, encourage everyone to check out your new film, Corazon Salado. We will have a link in the show notes. Uh, Before you go, we did put out a feeler to our followers on Instagram and at the lineup pod for some questions. Uh, The first question is from Et Norbel R, who says, uh, Big fan, do you have any advice for surfers afraid to surf big waves or how to handle that fear?
1: Wow, I think the best is surf the most you can. I mean, every way you need to surf a lot, training a lot and a psychological bar is really important. I mean, if you can make a good balance in between training, a lot of surf and psychological thing, I mean, your mindset setup is, is in the right place. And obviously, uh, step by step, you definitely, you know, when I go big from one day to the other, from three foot all the way to foot, you need to go Three, five, six, and and growing and growing like that way. So I think that is one like the the main key. And um and then, and then the other part is like obviously, you have to like it. I mean, if you don't like big waves, um, don't go, man. I mean, you have to push yourself because like from someone <laughs> can be a big wave. I mean, for me, a big wave can be I don't know twenty feet. For another people, big wave can be ten feet. Enjoy what you're doing. I mean, if you're going to serve mm. big waves for you, keep in there. And then from there, pushing more.
0: Great answer. Uh, next question is from Paneda who asks, what is the best season for waves in Chile?
1: I mean, it depends what you're looking for. We really like here. We have waves every year. I mean, all year round. I mean, for me, the best season obviously is March to May, June like starting getting into the the winter time but if you're moving north of chile actually is the main winter of the south hemisphere is good because the, the north you know the desert never rain is sunny every day uh you need you don't need much um uh, just to be there in the winter time is going to be waste every day
0: very cool and the last question that we selected from the instagram community is from at too cool for megan who asks do you have any particular uh, routine or rituals for that you do before you surf big waves
1: um i don't know no no like obviously the first part is check my equipment the day early bars leash impact inflatable beds skis and everything that's kind of like this the routine like the proper routine and i have it I'm always ready for that, and then just enjoy. Trying to trying to eat good, drink a lot of water, and in the morning wake up really early. Have my mate. It's kind of like like the main routine, and the main thing is the mate. And then hear good music and trying to be in a good vibe all day, just laughing and and, and joking with friends, so those, those nerves can go out and. It's been changing for years, you know, now just trying to enjoy every session, no matter get waves or no waves, and just trying to be in the water and enjoy it because I love it and and I have no pressure right now, just trying to go out and and do my best and enjoy it. so I think it, that balance is is better right now.
0: Awesome, and uh, great questions from the folks at The Lineup Pod. We appreciate those. We are now down to our final segment, which is the lightning round. So these are 10 questions for you to answer as quickly as you can. Okay. If you could only have one board set up for the rest of your life, a single-fin, twin-fin, thruster, quad, bonzer, or finless, which would you choose?
1: It's going to be a 9-6 quad. It is the only bar I'm gonna have forever. Coffee or tea? Mate.
0: Mm. Burrito or which pizza? Is tea? <laughs> <laughs> I got that one. Uh, burrito. Uh, last book you read?
1: Last book I read. Um, they call uh, the Wagner. The Wagner, which is an adventure about um, a, a lost ship. Uh, in this deep Patagonia, it's crazy. Cool, the uh, forgotten Wagner, call it
0: the Forgotten Wagner. Okay, uh, the what is the best surf film ever?
1: Uh, 180 salt. good choice. Love it.
0: Uh, what is one wave you never have to go back to?
1: Oh, uh, boom, 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 boom. wow. Mavericks? I want to get back, but I I don't want to get back. (laughs)
0: That's a good answer. If you only get to surf one way for the rest (laughs) of your life, which would it be?
1: Punta de Lobos.
0: Best person to share a lineup with? My son. Worst person to share a lineup with?
1: Uh, Myself, when I'm angry.
0: Mm. Uh, Last one. Finish this sentence. I will next achieve a state of happiness by.
1: Oh, just be in the water no matter what.
0: Awesome. Ramon Navarro, thank you so much for coming on the lineup. Thank you so much for everything you do in the water and out of the water. recommend everyone check out Corazon Salado and to support the cause um, that's that's discussed in the film. Uh, Thanks again, man. Look forward to seeing what you get up to next.
1: Thank you, Dave. Thank you guys for the opportunity and I hope you enjoy the podcast.
0: So that's it. That's the lineups conversation with Chile's Ramon Navarro. I hope you enjoyed it. On June 8th, make sure you check out Ramon's film Corazon Salado at patagonia.com slash Corazon. That's patagonia.com C-O-R-A-Z-O-N. It is well worth your time. The world's best surfers are currently traveling from North America to Central America for event number seven on the 2023 WSL Championship Tour, the Surf City El Salvador Pro, which will commence on June 9th. The event will stream live at worldsurfleague.com and the WSL app. Do not miss it. Today's episode is produced by Miguel Clemente with art direction by Jason Penning and copywriting by Dan Willen. Thanks to them and thanks to our sponsors. We appreciate their support. The lineup acknowledges that is produced and recorded on the ancestral lands of Chumash, Kumeyaay, and the Promakeus indigenous people. I hope you safely get some waves wherever you are, and we'll see you next Tuesday. WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup.